Today's theme uh, for Advent is peace. Now, here was my plan. Okay, this is my evil plan to save the world. Last year, um, I preached a sermon at the absolute last minute. Uh, I was told I was preaching at, on Friday afternoon um, at my old church, DPC. I had called John and just said, hey, can I show up on Sunday? We, remember last year we didn't meet every week during Advent. And I just said, hey, I have a Sunday off finally. Can I come say hi to everybody? And he's like, sure. And he texts me back, actually, can you preach? And the theme is peace. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so I spent 48 hours whipping up a sermon, and it was pretty good, you know? And so as I was looking at the plan for this year, I said, okay, so I have to teach hope and peace, and then we have a bunch of joint services, and then I teach Christmas, and then I don't teach New Year's. So I was kind of looking at my schedule. Okay, I already have a peace one because I taught it last year. I was really excited, you know? And then uh, earlier, and that was my plan. Even last week when I was talking about hope, I was thinking about this next sermon that I was going to be doing on peace. And then I was looking through the website, our website, and I was like, oh, I already did this sermon last year for Advent, and I don't remember doing it, you know? And then I looked at it, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So I doubled up on that sermon that I taught at DPC. I must have taught it the next week at our church. So real quick, because this is going to be a little different, I want to explain what I talked about last year in that sermon, and then we're going to build on it. So what we talked about was, um, oh, wait, who has the clicker? I do. Okay. Uh, Does that say Philippians? Okay. Um, I should put a little mirror right here on the thing. Uh, last year, what we talked about is there's, when we're talking about peace, there's something we get confused a lot, the peace of God and peace with God, all right? So here's the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we talk about the peace of God, we're talking about like a supernatural sense of peace in your life, right? This sense of calm, um, this sense of like just thing, you know, God has things in control and that impacts the way I look at the world around me. Um, in John, he talks about peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you do I, uh, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's it. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's the peace of God. Neither let them be afraid. I have said these things to you again in a different part of John, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribu- tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So the peace of God is just living life with this sense that, like, God's got this, okay? And he's the one who imparts this peace. But uh, it's like, the, you know, being calm in the storm. But the question is, how do we get the peace of God? That's not natural, right? People are not naturally like this. People freak out when, you know, life happens, it's, life is tough. It's hard, right? We live in a fallen and broken world. So how do we get this peace? And what we said, I said last year in the sermon was if you, uh, to have the peace of God, first you need peace with God. And that's not the same thing. See, peace with God, um, in the garden, you know, we talk about this probably every week. Humanity rebelled against God the Father, right? against God the Trinity, Yahweh God. We said, we don't want you to be in charge. We want to be in charge. And so what that did was it started basically a rebellion. It started a war against God. And not like, you know, when you, you know, Star Wars and everything, you're like, ah, oh, the rebellion's a good thing. Yeah, it is if you're rebelling against the evil emperor or something. But if you're rebelling against a perfect God, it sucks. And that's what we did, right? We took this perfect God and we said, we don't want anything to do with you. And we started this rebellion. And so... All of human history kind of is the story of people being at war with God. 
And so how then do we come to peace with this God that we are at war with? Uh, Romans says, I'm just going to click this and somebody tell me if it's not right. I don't have a young man's neck anymore. All right, Romans 5. Uh, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that, like, this section in Romans 5 was the whole sermon last time. So the, the idea of justification is the courtroom language, right? You're, you go to court, and the guy hits that, that little tiny hammer, you know, and he goes, uh, not guilty, right? You're found not guilty. And so since we've been justified by faith, right, not by works, not by what we do, but by putting our faith and our trust in the Lord, we're found not guilty because of that, all because of the work of the Lord Jesus, after that justification, then comes peace. Do you see that? Because of what Jesus did, we now have peace with God. And when we have the peace with God, then we're moved into this new relationship with him where we have the peace of God. Uh, yeah, okay, here's the rest of this. Romans 9. I want to read the rest of this verse. Or He, he elaborates um, in verse 9. Since, therefore, we uh, have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still, if, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by faith. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that's how it works. We've been reconciled, and because of that, we have peace with God. Because we have peace with God, we have the peace of God. Now, those are the three steps, right? Faith justifies you. The war is over. You have peace with God. And then the Spirit works in you and gives you the peace of God. But what we actually skipped last time was step number four. There's a fourth step we didn't get into. Um, On nerds. Here we go. I'm going to read it like this. <laughs> uh, this is a passage from Matthew. This is the whole passage. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him and opened his mouth. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is... Who knows what this passage is called? Beatitudes, right? We've all read this. So today what I want to do is focus on one specific beatitude. Is this the one, blessed are the cheesemakers? Right? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Blessed are the... Yeah, it's pretty funny. I hate that movie, but it's funny. Yeah, Uh, that part is funny. Um, Okay. So blessed are the peacemakers, right? This is the fourth step, right? After you have the peace you know, with God, and then you have the peace of God, then you become a peacemaker. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So what does that mean exactly? Right? That's our task today, just to define this. So last week we did a, um, 
my first ever three-point sermon. And uh, I don't know, I didn't think it was very good. So we're going to double it, and this week will be twice as good. All right, so here we go. Six things that define a peacemaker. Here we go. Number one, a peacemaker has already made peace with God. This is important. You can't, you're not going to be a peacemaker in a kingdom sense until you've already made peace with God. Uh, this guy, something Hughes, R. Kent Hughes, he wrote this commentary series that's pretty great. He says, no one can become a peacemaker, as he says, until he has found peace himself. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he's not just describing some sort of, oh, this would be nice if people were nice to each other and if they loved their enemies. What he's doing is he's describing the radical life of kingdom people, right? People who are part of his kingdom. These are not just nice proverbs. He's describing the upside-down kingdom we've been talking about in Luke for like 30 or 40 years. And... uh, He's describing what God does in the hearts of his own people, right? God's people love their enemies, right? God's people forgive. God's people are peacemakers. Naturally, we're not peacemakers. This is not the mode of the human heart, right? Look, Genesis 3, right? We have the fall. And then what happens right after the fall, the whole book of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament goes out to sort of picture what happens to humanity because of sin. And what we see is not peaceful. Right? It's not people making peace. Cain and Abel. First people we meet after Adam and Eve. And what does he do? Kills him. Right? How long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was able. <laughs> Feel free to take that to school and use it with your friends and be the most popular kid there. <laughs> um, my old pastor used to, I used to love, he how bad of a pun could he make? You know, every cow was, these cows are utterly ridiculous and all that stuff. Yeah, anyway, I stole that joke from him. Anyway, so then the next guy, who's the next guy we meet right after this? Lamech. You know this guy? He writes a song about how, it's like the first hip-hop song, first gangster rap song, because he writes a song about how I'm the greatest killer of all time. <laughs> right? I'm, a, I'm even more evil than Cain, that's what he says. Then the world gets so bad that God you know, backs everything up and reformats the hard drive, right? He sends the flood and he wipes everything out. Then you think, okay, well, things are going to get better now, right? We're starting over. Let's just look at the people of God, right, with Abraham. Is this family generally a family of peace, right? No, you have two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael. They don't get along. Then Isaac has some kids, Jacob and Esau. Do they get along? Nope. Conflict, conflict, conflict. Then uh, Jacob, Israel, he has a bunch of kids. Do they get along? No, what do they do? They take the, the arrogant punk and they throw him in the well. And they tell dad, or then they sell him into slavery and then they tell dad, oh, I don't know, he must have got killed or something. <laughs> right, this, is a mess, this is a messed up family, right? Then if you jump forward, there's just conflict and war all over. This is the reality of the Old Testament, right? Pharaoh and the people of God. Was Pharaoh a man of peace? No, he was a man of, he was a hard slave master, right? And then you think, okay, the people get away from Pharaoh, and then everything is just peachy keen, and everybody gets along, except for all the parts where they don't, and that's most of the story. And then, you, you know, they take over Canaan, and then you jump to the period of the judges. Boy, the period of the judges is, is not good. Okay, there's people killing each other, and they're chopping each other up and mailing pieces across the country. This is a time of war. And then you, have, you jump into the, like, okay, well, now 
Samuel is giving the people kings and stuff. And what happens with the kings? It's more war and more, like, even interpersonal stuff, right? Like Saul and David. Was Saul nice to David? He was not nice to David, right? Imagine if I was like, hey, uh, I have a headache. Uh, Dennis, could you come over to my house and play guitar for me? Because it helps my headache. And Dennis sits there, and he's playing his beautiful guitar that he never practices. And um, he's playing his guitar, and I go, I don't like this song. And I throw a spear through him, or I try to. And he ducks out of the way, and it sticks into the wall. That's what Saul did to David, right? These guys did not get along. And then right after Saul, is, um, after David, is Solomon, right? The, the grand, best part of the kingdom, right? The, the pinnacle of the kingdom. But then you read the story, the whole thing is built on brutal slavery, right? And he broke the rule. He enslaved God's people, right, to build the temple and to do all this stuff that he wasn't supposed to do. And then the kingdom splits after him, and the rest of it is just war, 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 and then exile, and that's kind of the end of the Old Testament, right? And they come back from the exile. But this is, this is the Bible paints a very realistic picture of what people are actually like. We're not peacemakers. We smash our brother's heads with rocks. My brother hit me in the head with a crowbar. My brother hit me in the head with a crow. No, I'm just kidding. That's not <laughs> Right? This is what we, it was an accident though, that one, probably, he says. Uh, <laughs> does that narrative that we see in the Old Testament, does that fit with the rest of human history? Are we peaceful or are we warlike people? Are we conflict people? We're conflict people. Alexander the Great, the Romans, the Vikings, the Aztecs, the various dynasties in China, the 20th century, right? All of this. this is, we're just, we're a people of war and sin. And uh, this guy, uh, oh, wait, I lied. This guy, Graham Cole. Sin brings strife because it spoils the relationships between us. This is what it does. And so since we're sinful and our relationships have been ruined, we have turned into warlike, violent people. We're not peacemakers. So the solution then is to move into the kingdom. He has delivered us, Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is a great verse. He did this. He brought us into his kingdom. And so when we make peace with God, because we've been justified and all that stuff from Romans, we're moved. We're moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his beloved son. And if real peace, and like the Bible talks about shalom, you know this word, it's like an all-encompassing peace. If real shalom comes from the being of God, peace is who he is at his core, then the only way to be a real peacemaker is to be a part of that kingdom, to move from over here to, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of peace. All right, two. See, we're flying through. We're already almost done. A peacemaker leads other people to peace with God. So if real ultimate peace comes from the God of peace, then the best way to be a peacemaker is to lead people to that source, right? is to lead people to God. Uh, lead people right to the, the, what is it, like the fountain where they can find water to drink. Uh, this dude, D.T. Niles, he was an Indian pastor, died in the 70s, 1970. Um, he said this, evangelism, nope, I lied. Do I not have this quote up there? Guess not. Did I skip it? All right, I guess I don't have this quote. Um, 
It's in the booklet, yeah. He says, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. I love that quote, right? And so if you look at the flow, you see how this makes sense, right? You know where the peace of God is found in his character, in his person. Your friends and neighbors are all out there looking for peace. So if you're a beggar who found a pile of bread, why not tell everybody else where's the bread? And that's what we do. So we lead people, uh, you know, to where peace is found. Um, a great example of this is, I'm going to talk about this story twice today, I think. Paul and Silas, you know the story? They're in Philippi. And they get there, and uh, it does not go well. And so what they do is they beat these guys up pretty good, and they whip them in the back, you know, and then they tie them into stocks. Someday I'm going to teach Acts for 11 years. And um, they put them in, the, like, the leg stocks, and if you think about it, that's horrible because their backs are all shredded, so they can't lay down. They have to sit up. Uh, and if you really want to get into it, there's no bathroom when you're in the leg stocks. So if you had to go to the bathroom, you basically go to the bathroom on yourself, and you have to lay your back down in it. It was a really messed up form of torture. And then what happens is there's this earthquake. And, oh, so that night, Paul and Silas, they're all... Um, they're singing hymns and stuff. They're worshiping. They're sitting in their stocks and they're worshiping. You know, blessed be the name of the Lord. You remember that song? Blessed be your name. Everybody's like, are these guys singing? Right? These nut jobs. So there's an earthquake and all the walls fall over and everything. And the rule was, if you were guarding a Roman, if you were a Roman soldier and you were guarding somebody and they got away, they would give you his punishment. So they'd crucify you or they'd do whatever. So this guy thinks, oh no, all the prisoners got away, the jailer. And he's about to kill himself. And then Paul goes, hey, always, oh, don't kill yourself, man. I'm, we're all still here. Hang, we're, just, we're fine. Everything's cool. You don't have to kill yourself. The guy's like, what? You could have ran away and you didn't run away? So he says to Paul, what does he say? Anybody know this story? He goes, what must I do to be saved? He looks at Paul and he goes, huh? He looks at Paul's peace all night. He has to sit there and listen to him singing. And just to make the story better, I don't think Paul could sing, right? You ever sat next to that guy in church that really can't sing but is really into it? I love that guy, right? That's my favorite. Uh, and so Paul is out there, and he's belting these hymns, and he's doing this thing, and it impacted this guy. And so this guy comes to Paul, and he says, I want that piece. And Paul leads him to the pile of bread, right? We're going to talk about that story a little more later. All right, number three. A peacemaker fosters peace with the people around them. So not only do we bring people to God where peace is found, but as we live kingdom lives, we're going to see conflict around us. We should not be the kind of people that jump into that conflict because we're very excited about it, right? We should be the kind of people that love it when people get along, not when people don't get along. Uh, this guy wrote a book about peacemakers and whatnot. It's called The Peacemaker. And uh, he says this, Conflict provides opportunities to glorify God, to serve others, and to grow and to be like Christ. So if your life has been turned upside down by the Lord, you've been moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son, that means you can't stand conflict, even when you're not the one in conflict. When you see two people that you love not getting along, that bugs you. And I love the imagery in the Bible of darkness and light. Um, John talked, this is like John's thing. We read 1st John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John together a long time ago uh, when we were first getting started. Um, but he says this, in him we have life and the life was the light of men. The light shines, this is the key, the light shines in the darkness 
and the darkness has not overcome it. So sin is constantly pictured as darkness, and conflict is part of that. It's, right, sin causes conflict. People don't get along. But then what happens is the kingdom of Jesus comes along, right? And it, with Jesus' ministry, it begins, it's inaugurated, and that kingdom is a kingdom of light. It's like shining a light in the darkness. And so all of a sudden, uh, in this world of darkness everywhere, in this world of conflict, these people of the kingdom start walking around with flashlights. And they start bringing this light everywhere they go. Or I guess lanterns would be a better... Flashlights is a little more in your face, right? Lanterns, you know? And so wherever we go, we carry this peace with us. We take the peace of God and we shine it all around. Now what this looks like is... What this means, this has some implications for us. The first thing is we have to actually live lives surrounded by people uh, who are not part of the kingdom. Right? We don't want to just huddle our lights together. We want to take our lights out into the darkness. That's what this missional living, paths, blue ribbon stuff we talk about a lot is all about. But here's another sort of implication. is Being a peacemaker like this means that we don't just gloss over the sin in the lives of the people around us. See, uh, one of the temptations is if I talk to, if I have serious conversations with people about their lives and the things that are destroying their lives and their idolatry and all this other stuff, it's going to cause conflict. And so if I want to be a peacemaker, I need to be like uh, kind of a pushover. I need to just not bring things up. That's not how this works, right? Um, if you go this route, you're really doing everybody a disservice. You're hiding the light that you have within you. Um, so, like, standing up to sinful behavior and injustice doesn't make you popular always, but sin is like a barrier to peace. Sin is a barrier to, um, like, it brings conflict. And so real peace is not made by just pretending that conflict, pretending that people's sinful behaviors aren't happening. Um, but as we do this, as we go into the world with our light and as we stand up for the things of the kingdom, we have to do it the way that Paul says, speaking the truth in love. You see, this is where another, a lot of Christians mess this up. Yeah, we got to call out sin, and we got to call out conflict, and we got to be in the world and be peacemakers. And the way we do that is to write hateful things on signs and protest, and to call people names, and to really look down at people. And we're just, we're pretty terrible at this, right? Historically, American Christians not been great at dealing with the world. And so what we do, though, is we... we get ourselves into people's lives in a way that they respect what we have to say and that we can say, look, I think this thing is hurting you and I care for you so much that I'm going to say something about it. The way that you're acting in this relationship, right, the way that you're treating your wife is not cool, man. And I can tell you that because we're best friends, right, because I've spent years investing in you and I've kind of earned this right. Um, one more thing I want to say just about like uh, fostering peace with the people around you. I have a little more stuff, but uh, um, I just want to say one more thing. Um, as you're doing this, right, as you're in the world and shining a light and you're trying to foster peace with the people around you, remember this too. You're not responsible for outcomes. Okay? Uh, this verse in Romans says, if it's possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do you see what that says? By saying, if it's possible, that means a lot of times it's not possible. Sin is strong. Right? The sin that lives within people is a powerful thing. And a lot of times, you're going to go into a situation, and you're going to try to help out, and you're going to try to bring two people who are in conflict together, 
you know, your friend's marriage is falling apart is a good example. And you're going to sit down and you're going to say, hey, let's talk about this thing. You know, can I help you guys? And uh, the sin in their lives is just going to be stronger than the kingdom light. It happens. So you're responsible for making the effort. You're responsible for doing that in a loving way. Those people should go, wow, you know, that, that person cared about me. That's what they should leave with. But you're not responsible for outcomes, right? All right, keep going. Number four, see, we're already almost done. A peacemaker builds on common ground. This one's a little shorter. Um, this could have been one of like of a sub point, but I wanted to make this a whole thing here. The way that we're built, what sin does to us is it makes us look around at the people around us and go and focus on the things that are different, right? We love to look at people and go, this is why that person is different from me. It, we would never say that out loud or even say it to ourselves, but that's the way that our brains work. Um, Christians in America, we're the masters at this. Looking at people and the first thing we see about them is the sinful whatever that makes them different from us. The sinful lifestyle, the sinful something. And then we define their whole being like this. This thing that makes them a little bit different is their whole identity. Um, Paul says, that's not how we're supposed to do this. To the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those. And he goes on, he's like, and to the Greeks, I became a Greek, you know. And to the, I forget, the barbarians, I became a bar, you know, like whoever it is, I'm going to try to adapt as much as I can to win people to faith. And he, the, he, in his ministry, we see this. His normal pattern was this. He would go into a new town and he would try to find some Jewish people. And he'd see, okay, is there a synagogue here? And if there's a synagogue here, he would go to the synagogue and he would say, hey, I'm a Pharisee. And, because he was, and I trained under this guy named Gamaliel who was like, this guy was some serious business, you know? And they would go, oh, wow, do you want to teach this Sunday? I would, or Friday night, I'd be happy to teach this weekend, you know? And he would show up, and he'd open your Bibles to Exodus, whatever. Now let me tell you about this Jesus guy. How he, he's the real Passover lamb, right? So he was being very Jewish. I'm a Pharisee in this. But then he goes to Athens. Does he say any of that stuff? No, he's talking to the philosophers. And what does he do? He goes, yeah, I know you guys have the statue to the unknown God. Now let me quote some poets at you and then tell you about this unknown God. He's very Greek, right? He's sort of adapting to the people around. He's, what he's doing is he's building on common ground. So part of being a peacemaker is not looking at people and seeing automatically what makes you different from them but saying, where can I build a relationship here, okay? If it's a Dodgers fan, there's no common ground. You shake your feet, get out of there. I think, it's in the Bible somewhere. Read it in your new Bible. <laughs> All right, number five. See, number five, we are flying. These are the fastest six points of all time. Uh, a peacemaker is willing to be hurt to bring peace. This is a key one. The biggest reason not to be a kingdom peacemaker is because sometimes, okay, you ever see, uh, like, a, um, uh, okay, I don't know if you've been in real life fights. Anybody here seen a big giant fight in real life? Okay. Uh, so you don't go to Dodger games? Okay, so if you go to Dodger games, this is what happens. 
the Dodgers fans get drunk and try to fight the Giants fans, and it's all their fault. We're just defending ourselves. And so, I, this was a lot worse when I was a kid at Candlestick. Um, but I, I saw this a few times. But y- you get the idea. There's a big group of people fighting, or a couple of people fighting. And there's always one guy who's like, I'm going to break it up. And he jumps in the middle. Everybody stop. Oh, I'm falling on my rug here. Everybody stop. You know, and then <laughs> he gets clocked in the face, and then everybody keeps fighting. That's a great picture for sometimes what it's like to be a peacemaker. Right, is you jump in the middle and then everybody punches you in the face. We just read most of Luke. We're going to finish in January. I swear, if we don't finish in January, I'll let you punch me in the face. Wait. Yeah, this means we can't miss a week because we last week. Of, I'll slap bet you. You guys ever do slap bets when you're kids? No, just me. All right. Uh, anyway, we just read most of Luke. And do you remember the kind of things Jesus talked about in Luke about what it means to live in the kingdom? It's like taking up your cross and following me. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. These are the kind of things he said. Basically, kingdom life is not pain-free or easy, but it's worth it. That's what Jesus says. It's worth it. And so sometimes being a peacemaker means getting hurt. Jump back to our story in Philippi. right? Paul and Silas get beaten. The guy gets saved. The jailer gets saved. You know the end of the story? Uh, we don't talk about the end of the story a lot because the main part is like they were singing the hymns after they got beat up, right? And then the guy got saved. So they're at this dude's house, this jailer's house. And I think they're at his house. They might have been at somebody else's house. Is it Lydia? She's from Philippi. Anyway, they're at somebody's house. And the city officials say, okay, you guys can go free. And you know what Paul says? He goes, no, I don't want to go free. I'm a Roman citizen, and you flogged me. And they go, uh-oh. Come again? And he goes, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen, and you beat me up. You, you had me flogged. I want an apology. I'm paraphrasing. This is the New John Version. So they apologize, and then he leaves town. That's really weird. Why did Paul let them flog him if he's a Roman citizen? Did you ever think about that? At the beginning of the story, the whole thing could have been avoided. Paul, they tie him to the beam or whatever it was, and they're getting ready to whip him. And he never says, hey, you're not allowed to whip me. I'm a Roman citizen, which was, that that was the law. They were never, they were not allowed to whip him without like a, a guilty verdict, like they were for everybody else. He could have got out of it. Why didn't he? Why did Paul let them beat him? torture him in prison, laying in his own pee with open wounds and sores. Now, we don't know for sure. The kind of the main theory is he knew what was going to happen when he left Philippi. These these people, if they're going to beat me, we just started this new church. There's only a couple of believers here. They're going to persecute this church out of existence. So I'm going to take this beating, and then when it's all over, I'm going to say, hey, you beat me up. How dare you? And if you mess with this church, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to do something about it. And you guys are going to get in a lot of trouble. And then he left. Paul was willing to be hurt for the protection of this new church and these new people. He was willing to be hurt to make sure they didn't get the beating he just took. 
You know what's another great story? Do you guys know the story? I've talked about it a handful of times through Gates of Splendor. You know these guys? So a bunch of um, missionaries, I think in the 50s, went down somewhere in South America. Does anybody remember where it is? Ecuador? Yeah. And so they went down. There was this, this tribe out in the, the jungles there. And um, they, they took a plane, and they would drop gifts, you know, and they, you know, like trying to make contact very slowly. And then I think a couple of times they landed the plane, and they talked to people, and then they flew back away. Um, and one of the times they landed the plane, and uh, one of the guys from the tribe, to get himself out of trouble, lied about these missionary guys. And so the tribe got really mad at these missionary guys. I forget the exact story. So they landed the plane, and they're like, hey, guys, we brought more presents, and the tribe rushed them. And they killed them with wooden spears. Now, I've never been stabbed with a wooden spear, but I imagine it sucks. <laughs> Not fun, right? And then threw their bodies in the river. Later on, Elizabeth Elliot, who's one of my favorite people of all time, followed up with the tribe and the other wives. The tribe, a bunch of them became believers and el- like elders in the church and helped raise the kids of the guys that they had killed. It's like this beautiful story of redemption and how God works and stuff. But here's the crazy part of the story. They find Jim Elliot and the guys, their plane. And you know what they had in the plane? Guns. They got killed with spears while they were holding guns. That's nuts, right? Unless you're a kingdom people who's trying to bring peace. Jim Elliot said and his buddies, I forget all their names. Jim's the only one I remember. He's like the main guy. I know where I'm going. I've made peace with God. If I shoot this guy right now, he has no chance for peace. So the only way forward, let him kill me with this wooden spear and hope that my wife comes in after me and tells this guy about Jesus. He sacrificed, literally, laid down his life to be a peacemaker. Sometimes that's the way it works. Um, Let's see. Okay, here we go. Last one. A peacemaker reflects, wait, where's my notes here? Reflects his or her father, right? So if you're a peacemaker, the reason you're doing that is because you look like God. Carson said this, D.A. Carson. It means we learn to reflect something of the character of God. This is writing about the Beatitudes. Uh, Who is the supreme peacemaker according to the Beatitudes? This is what he says. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's the key. The end of that verse is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Meaning... Not like, if you are a peacemaker, then you can be a son of God. It's like, you're a child of God, and that makes you a peacemaker, right? People will look at you and go, oh, that's a child of God, because that person's a peacemaker, right? Now, you have to remember the context of the Beatitudes and this whole thing that Jesus is teaching. This wasn't an individualistic world. This was a clan, communal, right, family-oriented world. And so what you did as an individual was seen as something that your family was doing. You were a reflection of your whole family. And so these folks thought much more in terms of families, right, than we do, and their connection of families. And so this is why Jesus says that they'll be called sons of God. What he means is sons are like their fathers. They represent their fathers. And so if you are going to be a representative of your father in this world, you have to be somebody who's out there making peace, right? This guy's had a quote from a guy named France. God is the supreme peacemaker. And this quality marks disciples out as sons, for the son shares, don't be mad if you're a girl with this, 
Son meaning like the one who inherits everything in this culture. For the son shares the characteristics of the father. So last week we talked about how when we live with hope, the world around us sees it. Do you remember we read that verse from Peter where he talked about, you know, you have to make a defense, right, for the hope that's in you because people are going to see that hope and they're going to wonder what's going on. The same thing is true with peace because our father is the God of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. And so we're his children. We're the children of the father. Then we are children of peace. This is who we are. And so what I want to do is just end with thinking about, wait, real quick. I want to do one more thing and then end. Sorry, I lied. I just want to real quick, if you look at our six points, I want you to realize Jesus is the ultimate example of all of these six points. If we look at the life of Jesus, and if being a Christian means a little Christ, we're turning into little versions of Jesus slowly as the Spirit works in our lives. Think about our six points. A peacemaker has already made peace with God. That's Nobody's closer to God the Father than Jesus. A peacemaker leads others to peace with God. Isn't that what Jesus, his whole mission, right, was to seek and save the lost. It's the whole reason he became one of us, right, at Christmas and he died, uh, you know, in Holy Week and came, you know, in the resurrection. I'm spoiling January, rise from the dead. But all of this is to make peace, to make our peace with God. He already has that peace. Third, a peacemaker fosters peace with the people around them. Look at the story of Jesus in Luke, right? Their society had decided there's all these different kinds of people that aren't worth anything. Tax collectors, prostitutes, the poor, Samaritans. And who are the people that Jesus is constantly bringing back into the society, right? He's fostering this peace. He's working to bring people back in. Peacemakers build on common ground. I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but go read the two back-to-back stories with Jesus and John uh, three and four, I think, where he talks to um, uh, Nicodemus, who's this Jewish religious leader. And then the next story, he talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And just notice how Jesus builds on common ground in both of those stories for the purpose of explaining the gospel to these folks. He kind of meets them where they're at. He meets the woman at the well. This guy wants to meet at night. Fine, I'll meet him at night. We'll talk heavy theological stuff. Right? But that's what Jesus does. Fifth, a peacemaker is willing to be hurt to bring peace. I don't think I had to explain this one, right? Didn't we just read the cross? Our redemption came at a great price, right? Not only the pain of the cross, but like we talked about, the agony of facing the wrath of God. And then the sixth one, a peacemaker reflects his father. This is Jesus exactly, right? He says, look at me and you see the father. I and the father are one. The best way to know the Father is to look at Jesus. And so if we're turning into little versions of Jesus, then we should be turning into little peacemakers. And so to end then, I just want you to think about our Paps Blue Ribbon, what do we call it, framework? Is that what we decided on? Our Paps Blue Ribbon framework and the idea of peace. When you have your folks, that your neighbors and friends and coworkers and family and whoever it is, think about Paps. Pray. What do you pray for? You pray that they would find the peace of God, peace with God, so that they can have the peace of God and that they could become peacemakers. Pray for opportunities to be a peacemaker in their lives. As you ask them questions, right, look for ways to be a peacemaker in their life. People are going to complain to you about stuff. Like the, the one I've used already a handful of times is that they're going to complain about their spouse. Uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or they're, you know, my 
mother is blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, people are in conflict. You, you hear the story. And you go, wow, that sounds really hard. Just ask them questions. How are you dealing with that? How are you trying to make peace in this situation? Is there anything I can do to help bring you guys back together, to help you in this conflict? And then you bless others as you bless them by sacrificing for their peace. Right, like, um, I'll, give you, you know, I'll give you one example of this. Uh, okay, so generally the rule is preachers should never tell stories about themselves where they look good. Because, like, you, you, you guys know me. So I think I can share one story because I'm not that great. <laughs> but I can share just one little thing that I was thinking about from my life. So um, somebody I knew had a big day coming. I don't want to give details because then you'll figure out who it is, even though none of you know him. Uh, somebody I knew had a big day coming up. So I bought him a pretty expensive gift. And then after I bought the gift, this person blew it and did something really horrible to me. <laughs> like church leadership had to get involved kind of horrible. <laughs> okay. And right in the middle of that massive amount of conflict was his big day, this thing that happened. And so I went to him on his big day and I sat him down and I said, hey, I know we got all this stuff going on. I got you this gift before this all happened. I want to give it to you anyway and then we'll get back to it. <laughs> all right, we'll figure it out. And I sat down, and I gave him his big, expensive gift. Uh, and I remember his face. He couldn't understand it. He was just shocked. He looked at me like, why are you giving this to me while I'm in the middle of completely ruining your life? <laughs> and I would like to tell you that everything got better. We kind of dealed with some conflict, and there was still some sin. It's you know, a bunch of people, right? It was a messy story. But it changed the tone a little bit. Just, hey, I'm going to bless this guy even in the middle of this conflict. And that's what we do, right? We just we bless people no matter what because blessing people brings peace. Then we share our story, right? We share about our peace with God with people. Same thing. Like I said, people should notice the hope in you from last week. They should notice the peace in you as well. They're, they're linked. And then we talk about that. And then we tell them the story of the God who died for them to bring peace. Right? We get to that point. We work our way um, to that point. So... We want to be people of peace. I mean, I don't know. There, there's our little church, as we move into this new season of church, we think about the future. There's kind of, let's say our church starts to grow. There's two ways this could happen. One is we get a bunch of people who just show up and like what we've got going on. The second way is the way, I mean, and we're fine with that if people show up that way. Great. Whatever. Uh, but the way we want to put our energy into is not that. The way what we want to put our energy into is being these kind of people with the people around us, right? I'm more excited when one of you knuckleheads brings a friend to dinner that I get to meet who's not a believer than I am when an already Christian guest walks in on Sunday morning. You know what I mean? So what I want you to do is be people of peace. Be out there. Be people of hope like we talked about last week. Be people of peace and... I want to meet your buddies, right? I want your people to come to New Year's Eve and football and, what, you know, and then eventually, hopefully, church. And I want to help you live lives where you're fostering peace with the people around you, right? And we want to be peacemakers, amen? All right, let's close with a prayer. Um, oh, wait, actually, I have it. Hold on. There's a guy open. Um, different iPad, all button. Okay. Um, there's a prayer, we have this new prayer book too, um, by a guy named Ephraim the Syrian, who, let's see, died in 373. 
AD. He wrote this prayer about peace. And the reason I want to read this prayer specifically is because he wrote it. And the way that he died is exactly what we were talking about. So there was a plague. Not good, right? We know about plagues. We're really good at plagues now. We have a lot of plague experience here at the port. Okay, so there was a plague. And everybody uh, in southeast Turkey, I wrote this down, is what it says. And everybody else ran away. I got to get out of here. Everybody's dying. And Ephraim, 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 Ephraim the Syrian, he was like, you know what? I'm going to bring the peace of God to these people. I'm going to bring hope to these people. What's next week's one? Love, maybe? Joy and love. Those are coming up. I'm going to bring joy and love to these people. I'm going to bring Jesus to these people. And he went into the little town, and he took care of everybody, and then he got the plague, and he died. Willing to be hurt to bring people peace. This guy, he wrote this prayer. So we're going to end today with a prayer by a guy who understood this better than any of us ever will. Okay? All right, let's pray. Without ceasing, my God, I will step into the doorway of your house, asking boldly for your grace to receive it with confidence. Lord, our hope be our wall. If the earth gives life many times over to a grain of wheat, so will your grace enrich my prayers even more. As you hear the voices of my people, their sighs and groans, open the doors of your mercy. For you were once a child, and you know what it is like. Listen to the prayers of your children, O Lord. When sheep see wolves, they flee to the shepherd for shelter under his staff. Your flock has seen the wolves, they cry out in terror. Let your cross be a staff to drive away whatever would swallow them up. Angels came down and proclaimed peace to the baby born in a cattle stall. I pray for that same peace for my people, the peace that we could never find on our own. It took a baby, the son of Mary. Have mercy, Lord, who was once a child, on these children. Hear the cry of little ones. Save them by your grace. They cry out from the midst of this flock of sheep to the greatest shepherd of all. Amen.